0: So, Judas. Um, Yeah, Judas is a... That's a difficult topic. And inevitably, when we start thinking about Judas, there are going to be more questions than answers. There's a whole lot of things that we just don't know. Um, At the very least... uh, we can kind of see how the last week of Jesus' life plays out um, with respect to Judas. Um, the, the, the main trouble for Jesus really wasn't the Pharisees. Uh, there, were, there was a group within the Pharisees that really hated Jesus um, and, uh, and really, really did not appreciate his teaching, shall we say. But they didn't have any teeth. The Pharisees were kind of a populist movement. They, uh, they didn't have a lot of political power. Um, I mean, they had some, but not a ton. It was the chief priests that had the teeth. Uh, they ha- were uh, very deeply connected with the Roman authorities. In fact, the uh, Actually, it wasn't the Romans, it was the Greeks who figured out that if you control the office of the high priest, you have a lot of control over the Jewish people. Rome, when they took over, continued that arrangement. So the chief priests realized pretty quick, once Jesus makes it into town and then pronounces condemnation on the temple and then spends that week teaching and preaching among the people, that he has to go. And the chief priest potentially could do something about it. That's why they had access to Pontius Pilate so easily, for example. And we'll talk about him in two weeks, maybe? I don't remember. Um, But even they had a problem. Jesus was popular. And he was teaching very publicly and openly in the temple complex, and this was the week leading up to Passover, which means the population of Jerusalem would swell by a good up to 300,000 people, give or take. So, it's crowded. And this is also a time when the people are celebrating and remembering when God liberated them from slavery in Egypt. So that whole theme of liberation from oppression uh, and liberation from godless authority, that's going to be on everybody's mind. Um, It would be easy to start a riot leading up to Passover, which is why Pontius Pilate is in town, by the way. Normally, I think he was up in Caesarea, but around Passover, he'd come down with a whole bunch of troops just to make sure. So the chief priests, as much as they potentially had the ability to make a lot of trouble for Jesus, they couldn't arrest him publicly. Doing so would certainly start a fight. And one that they probably wouldn't win. So they need a guy on the inside. Enter Judas. The problem is we don't know his motivation. We are not told. It's almost certainly not money. Thirty pieces of silver isn't really that much. It's not life-changing money. You know what I mean? Like if you give, if I were to give you ten thousand dollars, which I don't have, I'm not offering. um, It'd be a lot of money, but it's not going to change your life, right? So there are a lot of theories, a lot of speculation. Some theories are better than others about what might motivate Judas. And at the very least, I think we can establish that something is motivating him because it's only in like cheap cartoons that the villain likes to wring their hands and be bad for the sake of being bad, right? Like, haha, I like being bad. Like, that works for five year olds. But then you hit the real world and you realize that some of the scariest, most dangerous people are those who are convinced they are right. And they have a motivation that they have convinced themselves is righteous. That's where things get scary. So at the very least, something is compelling Judas. So I'll give you the theory that I... I buy into most days, um, but at the very least, we know something is causing him to do this, uh, and it has has to do with his his last or not his last name. They didn't have last names back then, but but the uh, Judas Iscariot. The, the The word Iscariot. Um, when Jesus was a teenager. Early teens. There was another wave of taxation coming down from the Romans onto generally what we would call like Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. And there was a, um, a guy named Judas Gamala of Galilee who whipped a bunch of people into uh, a frenzy. He also had a counterpart named Zarok the high priest. Or I'm sorry, not the high priest, Zadok the Pharisee, which is like the opposite of high priest, but whatever. Um, my point being is he wasn't alone, but he was the leader. He whipped people up into a frenzy, and he started saying things like taxation is like slavery, and as Jews, people of Israel, God's people, we will not be slaves anymore. So we started a little rebellion. Now some of that might sound a little familiar. Uh, slavery is tantamount, or uh, taxation tantamount to slavery, and we will be free. No taxation without representation. Give me liberty or give me death. Some things just never change, by the way. Um, so he gets a little movement going. They get a cute little rebellion going. And Rome comes in, and uh, final count, I think they crucified somewhere between two and 3,000 men sends a little message. Uh, but this is officially the start of a group that, w- that will eventually be known as the Zealots. Uh, sometimes if you're being fancy, they'd be the Kanaim, uh, but the Zealots. And uh, the, the death of all of those people did not snuff them out. In fact, they, they were there for, a while, um, for, for years, just underground. Sometimes they'd kind of bubble up, but... Um, They were all very keenly aware that in some form or fashion, God had promised liberation for his people, freedom. And inevitably, that would be connected with the idea of Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is coming. God finally doing what he promised he would do. Where they would, uh, through this Messiah, God would liberate the people from oppressive overlords, reestablish the boundaries of Israel, reform the temple, so on and so forth. Um, These zealots tended to be pretty violent, pretty dangerous. Um, One man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist, essentially is what you're looking at. Famously, Jesus has one of these, or he chooses one of these guys as uh, one of his 12 disciples. Simon the Zealot. Sometimes you'll see it as Simon the Canaanian. Um, Sometimes they'll say like Canaanian. That's wrong. It's Canaanian, but whatever. Um, I think Jesus knew what he was doing. Uh, Eventually, about a generation after Jesus, uh, these zealots will completely boil over, and they will kind of come together. There were different factions and start a war that will end in the destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem, exactly like Jesus said it would. Jesus predicted this in a couple of places. So like when he says that people will come after me saying, I am he, and I am he, he's not talking about false saviors in the way that we might think, he's basically predicting that something is going to boil over and a violent, out, um, a violent war is going to break out and we are going to lose badly because Jesus is all about liberation, but he's here to free us from ourselves, from our, our own sin and death, not political powers. So among the zealots, what you'd call you know lowercase Z zealots, that started when Jesus was younger, there was a small group called the Sicarii, and they were uh, they named themselves that because they would carry a dagger, by the name. Sakari's plural. I can't remember the singular because I'm tired, but whatever. Um, And they would would hide these daggers in the, the fold of their robe. And if they see a target, say in Jerusalem walking around, maybe a collaborator like a tax collector, a Roman official who was not smart enough to have an entourage, crowd presses in, And then you're gone. All they see is somebody dropping and bleeding. Terrorists. Like, like motorcycles that are really loud. Just terrorists. Terrorizing everybody. Um, quite, I mean, very much, quite literally terrorists. So the theory goes, and the reason why I just spent all that time explaining that, is that Iscariot and Sicari, um with the, with the way that, that Semitic languages work, are probably related. And so the theory goes that Judas is in some way associated with this group. Now we know Jesus has chosen another, a, a zealot, Simon. Um, so it's not outside of the realm of possibility. But then that still leaves us with motive. Why would Judas do that? And the theory that I most days of the week I I think I lean on is that Judas was getting impatient. He knew that, or he was pretty sure Jesus was the Messiah, and so he was ready for the war, ready for the fight. And so, in his mind, according to this, this possibility, He gets Jesus arrested to get things started. Um, Another possibility is that he had hitched his wagon to this guy and he is um, disappointed. And so, for whatever reason, he thinks that this is how he's going to solve his problems. I don't really buy that, but it's possible. But what is wildly fascinating to me is that potentially any one of us could fall into that kind of thinking. Uh, Now, Judas, uh, of course, realizes pretty fast that whatever plan he has in his mind, it is not working out how he expected and he tries to give the money back. Of course, the chief priests say, No, that's dirty money. We can't take it back, which gives you a little insight into their character. Um, and then Judas comes to a grisly end, alone, in some way disappointed with how this whole story with Jesus ended. I think it's really important to remember that you and I are not so different from Judas. In fact, people are extraordinary in their ability to justify their behavior. I can justify almost anything I've done. That wasn't supposed to be funny. Mistakes were made, <laughs> yeah, mistakes were made yes. Hmm. <laughs> I don't like it when people use my preaching against me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, that's honestly, in terms of theme, that's pretty continuous. Mistakes were made, which if you weren't here, that was we talked about that last week, That that's that reflects the inability to admit fault. Judas is kind of taking it one step further, justifying behavior that anybody else with any other kind of perspective would look at and say that is evil. So, this being Lent and it being a time of reflection, I would ask, how are you doing? When was the last time you made a decision and then you've had to convince yourself that it was in fact the right decision morally? Take a really easy example. You're running late. Well, realistically, I'm running late. I usually am. Uh, and you're driving on the 25. Can you, how, how do you justify speeding? Well, I don't want to inconvenience my friend. If I'm late for that appointment, it's going to set off a chain reaction and kind of ruin my day. The risk is worth it. It's a nice justification. It's not right. Um, we're very, like, the human heart has to convince itself in one way or another that it is okay. And like Judas, we will do terrible things to ourselves and other people to do that, and that should scare us. There's uh, the the final interaction that Jesus has with Judas has really struck me. Preparing for this, um, Jesus knows what Judas is doing. He knows they're coming. And his response, or his comment to Judas, is not quite, but almost tender. It's pretty kind. I can promise you, I would not respond like that. And so you have a really weird juxtaposition. On the one hand, you have Judas who has convinced himself he is doing the right thing when in reality he is setting off a chain of events that will lead to the most singularly evil event in our history. And on the other hand, you have the person who will bear the weight of that singularly evil moment Who also has grace, perspective, and forgiveness in his heart. And has the audacity to call the other one friend. That would eat at me. And so I think that that moment when Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do, is it like it just in a, in a moment, it tells the whole story of Lent beautifully. Where on the one hand during this season, we have to, we, we, we come to terms with this, this just reality that we are very good at justifying our own terrible behavior our own moral decisions, the things that we know are wrong deep in our hearts, but we can't handle that, so we have to convince ourselves that we are okay. And on the other end of that moment is one looking at us with grace, perspective, and forgiveness. Who did, in fact, come for liberation, but actually to save us from that. And so maybe the story of Judas in its betrayal and its darkness and evilness and mystery is right there, the gospel kind of coalescing in that one moment. Where we end up standing before Jesus, betraying who we are as human beings made in the image of God, betraying what we know to be right, even though we've convinced ourselves that we're okay. That it was okay to treat that person this way because that it was okay to do this because that I can convince myself that I'm okay even though I know I'm not in and of myself. But then also being welcomed by the one, this Jesus, who actually bears the weight of this evil with grace, perspective, and forgiveness in his heart for you and for me. Amen.